This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from Tiruciar in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Anthony Dockrell. Coming up, a review of defamation laws has caused a few raised eyebrows this week, with one suggestion that corporations may be allowed to sue. PwC has released its 17th annual Australian Entertainment and Media Outlook report, and it looks like trust is an impediment to media's ability to grow in this country. The report follows hot on the heels of another report from the Centre of Media Transition entitled Public Trust in Journalism, found trust in media is falling, but traditional media still carries a high degree of weight. But in a world of fake news, is trust even possible? Also, Bill Shorten has promised to restore ABC's funding, but is this actually good news for the ABC? Joining me in the studio to find out, we have Dana McCauley, the media writer for The Australian. Hello. (laughs) Olivia Willis, who is a health reporter for the ABC News and Radio National. Hello. Hi. And on the line from Melbourne is Rachel Eddy, who is the news reporter for The New Daily. How are you going? Hi. A review into changing New South Wales defamation laws is underway. In fact, the review's been going since 2010 and is now at the stage of making recommendations. The New South Wales Bar Association has previously made a submission that corporations should be included in defamation law, but this was rejected back in 2005 for reasons that reputation was largely seen as a personal right. But now it looks like this idea, while not necessarily getting the green light, may be alive again. Now, the only thing that frightens journalists more than a dry bar is defamation law. First up, Dana, do corporations deserve the same protection as individuals? Um, Yeah, look, um, I don't think that they do. And I think the prevailing view in the legal community is that corporations don't don't suffer from hurt feelings and that there are enough legal remedies available to them to be able to protect their reputations, such as the consumer law, which allows them to sue for misleading and deceptive conduct. But yeah, so I mean, the big, the big concern is that if corporations can sue uh, for defamation, that um, business reporting that led to the Banking Royal Commission might not have been able to be published and that in fact the um, the, the Royal Commission may never have happened and all of these things that are come, emerging from it clearly demonstrate that, that that reporting was valid and was, was very needed. Rachel, are you, are you worried at the idea that corporations could sue under defamation law? Um, yeah, that's definitely concerning if um, it is something that's taken up. Um, I mean, they're now going to a national review and the Victorian Attorney-General, Martin Pakula, has said that Victoria won't be supporting... Um, that amendment, they would support 
you know, the social social media aspect of the review, um, but they won't be backing um, uh, for corporations to have the right to sue for defamation. Um, so I'm hopeful that that's not something that will go through. Um, it just It's hard to see how that would um, have any support from not just journalists, but even the public. I think um, reporting that exposes bad behaviour um, of corporations is quite popular. Um, people like to complain about the banks. We like to learn this stuff. We, we want to know about 7-Eleven and Domino's, um, you know, allegedly underpaying their staff or, or not just allegedly. Um, so I, I would be hopeful that that's not something that's going to go through. Olivia, you're a health reporter. I mm. mean, how worried would you be? Yeah, I think it's much of what has been said. I mean, I think it's even it's more than it's it's popular journalism. I think it's the function of journalism in a democracy yeah. is to is to prevent the kind of you know exposure of or I guess to expose wrongdoing. Um, and I think changing the defamation laws, there's yeah, there's real danger to what Dana said, like it, you know to prevent journalism that that exposes corruption that leads to things like the Banking Royal Commission. Um, I think large corporations obviously have you know, huge resources to engage in very strategic litigation. Um, and it would be a particular danger probably for smaller publishers, I think. Okay. Well, look, just being devil's advocate here, I mean, corporations do have reputations. I mean, just ask Volkswagen, who uh, has had their reputation completely trashed uh, recently, and now they have to rebuild it. Um, why can Joe Hockey uh, protect his reputation, but Macquarie Bank can't? Well, yeah, as, as we've as we've sort of gone into a little bit, um, they do. Companies do have other remedies available. There's in the, the tort of injurious falsehood. So if someone sets out to attack a company to, for the purpose of damaging its reputation with, you know, with blatant lies, then they do have that available to them. You have you do have to prove malice. So essentially, the burden of proof is the opposite of um, in defamation. Um, but um, yeah, and also um, companies with 10 employees or less can already sue. So people are protected. And, you know, the, there are just so many more ways that companies can can address their reputational issues. They've got huge PR teams. They've mm-hmm. got, you know, they, they, they've got all the power. So, yeah. Okay. Well, look, uh, in countries like US, New Zealand, Canada and the UK, corporations can sue. Uh, now, my understanding in the UK, corporations have to prove a serious harm test. If there was such a test in Australia, uh, how does the panel feel? Do they still feel that this is a step too far? I think it's still a step too far, mainly because um, it's just another layer of legal process that that um, publishers have to go through. And, you know, there's already such a heightened awareness of defamation in the wake of the Rebel Wilson judgment. And, you know, lawyers going through stories with a fine-tooth comb and to add that extra layer to, you know, to essentially remove the immunity of of reporting on large corporations would be such an impediment. I mean, one of the other aspects about this too that strikes me is that, um, uh, you know, banks have deep pockets, you know, large corporations have deep pockets, even deeper than Rebel Wilson. Uh, and in a in a world of shrinking newsrooms, you can see you can see there's a problem here where um, newsrooms can't take on any more litigation that's actually going on I mean, as well. I mean that's another factor as well. Mm, yeah, exactly. And you know, one of my colleagues, business colleagues, mentioned that you know even things like putting a headline that you know over companies share the company's profits plunged and using that type of mm. wording might even be problematic if if we 
bring in this um, suggested reform. Now, look, one area that is under review is looking at social media and how the law treats this new kind of social space. Uh, a, a recent report from the Centre for Media Transition has highlighted how cases involving defamation coming from social media posts have ballooned in recent years, and the growth is not necessarily coming from public figures. It's also among the general public suing other users of social media. Now, some of these cases are serious and some are not. Um, how, how does the panel feel about the fact that uh, you know members of the public who aren't trained, like we've all had media training here, and our employer would like to think, our employers would like to think that some of it is stuck, um, you know, do members of the public actually even have any idea of what they're risking when they go and post on social media? I don't think so. I mean, I think we know that from the from the volume of, of cases that are going through the courts. And my understanding is that, you know, like you said, it can be pretty trivial matters in a sense that are probably clogging up the court system. Um, and if the if the laws were kind of drafted in 2005, you know, that was so long ago in the, in the sense of, of what the digital landscape is now that it feels... That seems like, a, you know, a pretty a decent amendment to me is to, to catch up um, with digital publishers and, and how um, people are using, you know, social media and the internet privately. And, I yeah, like you said, I don't think people really have any idea in many cases of, you know, that a text message could be defamatory or a blog post or things that they probably understand as being pretty private. Hmm. Rachel, how do you feel about this? Yeah, I think that um, the general public doesn't understand, um, you know, the details of defamation and the risks involved and so on. And I think that you can see that when even just reading the comments on journalism, um, you know, on, on articles and so on, a lot of people will sometimes be quite critical of the article or the journalist and say, you know, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you just come out and like openly talk about this and blah, blah, blah. And they don't realise that, you know, these things can be risky and there's reasons why things aren't included or there's reasons why things are written in a certain way. Look, the Wild West days of social media may be coming to an end and the law is trying to catch up, but but should people on social media be held to the same standards as journalists? Uh, I think that this is actually one of the other proposed reforms is we need to have a triviality defence that Mm -hmm. actually works um, and a serious harm test because, yeah, the types of things that people are suing on are just unbelievable. There's actually a woman who sued a judge over her judgment, which simply... (laughs) <laughs> said that, she, that her case failed. <laughs> and um, the same woman sued um, a publisher for running a column that disagreed with her column and made no personal attacks or comments about her whatsoever. And, I mean, that just shows the, ty- the, the availability of the courts to, to people who want to sue is pretty um, incredible, like beyond what people would imagine. You're listening to Fourth Estate, where journalists talk about journalism. I'm Anthony Dockwell, and joining me this week are Dana McCauley from The Australian, Olivia Willis from the ABC, and on the line from Melbourne is Rachel Eddy from The New Daily. PwC Australia released its 17th annual Australian Entertainment and Media Outlook, and it's good news and some bad news. First, the good news, the sector as a whole is expected to grow at a rate of 3% over the next five years although digital services see the majority of this growth. And if you work in print, free-to-air TV, or for movies, don't expect to see any growth anytime soon. The report also found trust as a major barrier to growth. Now, a problem with trust is not something unique to the media sector, but it is a problem when trust is a necessary precondition of the service we provide. 
How seriously as journalists do we take this problem uh, with trust in media? Well, what I've picked out of that report is I had a look at the newspaper section um, and it did show that traditional media trust um, had grown quite substantially over the last year from, you know, readers were trusting traditional media much more now than they were a year ago. Um, and obviously, conversely, search engines and social media platforms, um, the trust had just sort of bottomed, bottomed out in that time. Um, so, you know, hopefully that's, that's saying something about the future of the sustainability of journalism if, um, if they're saying that trust is the, the major barrier for growth. Um, although, obviously, you know, the industry is still declining in, in a lot of other measures at the moment. Uh, Olivia, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think that's a good thing, but I, th- I think there is a danger that people conflate very you know misleading media or um, all sorts of things they find online with just media in general. Like all the media is lying, all the media is misleading, all the media is bad, and I think that's the real danger um, is when we can't figure out who to trust and who not to trust. Um, and I think that's a particular challenge for you know, well-established legacy media organisations that, um, you know, have fact-checkers and well-resourced information and how, um, you know, that might kind of be tarnished with the same brush as as, um, any old thing that's published on the internet. Um, And so I think the media needs to do better, but I also think it's really important that, you know, consumers are turning to trusted media. I mean... Yeah, they're, they're turning to trusted media sources or turning to media sources that are that are reputable. Um, yeah, so I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal has really um, brought people back towards trusted media sources. Yeah. There has been some research that that showed that, um, and and I think that PwC report um, also mentioned you know Facebook now faces this challenge of having to rebuild its trust um, and that the key for them will be consistency because they've sort of done the right thing by taking, sort of taking responsibility and apologising. But now people want to see consistent action that, you know, that they're they're going to protect people's private information. Look, what about the idea that some distrust is actually a healthy thing? I mean, even even when you're reading uh, like, you know, traditional mastheads, I mean, sometimes it's good to look at a story and go, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all media companies are facing budget restraints these days and you should always question and read read from different sources and, and you know, consider the different agendas and angles that are at play and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, it's part of the problem that, you know, a, a lot of us are now viewing the world through political goggles. And so even even with uh, mainstream media, you can use those political goggles and, and, and select your news. Is, is that, do people see that as a problem? I think that's another thing with the social media bubble, you know, people often get their news on Facebook and they're only consuming it from sources that agree with them, so they're not broadening their perspectives. Um, yeah, I do think, I think that's a perception probably um, more so than a legitimate problem, certainly with like the legacy media anyway. I mean, I think um, the major masters are always going to want to publish a story if they have the story. You know, no one, in the case of Barnaby, Barnaby Joyce, for example, sorry to bring it up again. Um, <laughs> we were planning to be a Barnaby-free zone. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there was, there was no conspiracy not to publish the stories. And I think some people, 
were a little bit surprised that it was um, that it was News Corp leading that reporting. But you know, no journalist wants to sit on a good story if they if it's reached a publishable standard. You know, so so I think that is more of a perception problem than um, a genuine problem um, that that exists in the media. Yeah, Rachel. Look, maybe I think that's part of part of the issue is is what we've spoken about that kind of siloed, I guess, mm. media markets that we're diving into and staying into and reading all our news from there. Um, but I think it's just a broader challenge around, particularly in this you know this age of fake news and what is truth and what is not. I think that's um, yeah, it, it creates a challenge for every media organisation and is less about yeah people being reading particular things and more broadly about the nature of truth and reporting just very generally okay well look, before we get on to talking about how we can build trust one last thing I want to talk about is uh, how much do you think this this falling in trust has to do with the the global nature of how we live and consume our media and I'm thinking of something in like for instance like the phone hacking scandal that hit the UK. Um, how many people, say, sitting in Australia would have read that, looked at that scandal and have transferred some of that distrust about UK journalists to Australia? I think probably there's there's definitely an element of that. It's, it's what I was speaking about before around yeah. conflating media and, um, you know, I don't think necessarily the public distinguishes between journalists at the Australian or Fairfax or the ABC or whatever. We're just all journalists and we're all doing the kind of same job to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so I think when um, there's a case like that, then, you know, it's bad for all media. How do you think the media can increase the level of trust out there? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, people have always distrusted journalists. You know, they've always been one of the least trusted professions. Yeah, I mean, the, the TV show Frontline would have made any sense if people no. loved journalists. But I think that's just a testament to the fact that the, the general public and our readers or our listeners um, are critical thinkers, and that's that's a great thing. That's just, you know, the defining characteristic of a healthy democracy. So, you know, we can just cop it um, and, you know, just be happy to, to keep serving them. I mean, if, if they really hated journalists and journalism so much, then they wouldn't be consuming it. And they are in greater numbers than ever before. So I think it's just, you know, we have to all, always hold ourselves to a high standard and just be aware of, you no know, matter, you know, the resources may be lower, but you just have to check and check and check and, you know, be wary of where things are coming from and, you know, just try to be a good journo. Um, I would pretty much agree with that. I do think a lot of readers... Um they consume a lot of journalism that they would hate if they were on the receiving end of it, if you know what I mean. Like the kind of, um, you know, even just death knocking or, you know, hitting people up on Facebook um, over a traumatic story. That's, these are all things that happen everywhere in journalism and this is some of the most popular journalism as well. Um, but, you know, if, if they're ever on the receiving end of that, then fair enough, it's pretty awful. Um, so I think that you know, perhaps that's a, yeah, journalists always, have always been hated and maybe that's just how it is. If you love the Fourth Estate, you can share that love by financially supporting the radio station that produces it. 2SCR 107.3. Now, 2SCR is a community station and we are a registered non-profit organisation. So any contribution you make is tax deductible. And as it is tax time, you won't have to wait too long for your return. So if you love independent journalism 
and want to support the Fourth Estate, just head over to 2OCR.com and do your bit to help out. Now, I know the Fourth Estate is a much-loved show, so it would be great if you got behind us and supported us. Thanks. You're listening to Fourth Estate, coming to you from TRCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. It's been a rocky road for the ABC of late, from a funding cut at the last budget to a series of complaints from the government. But there could be light on the horizon, with Bill Shorten promising to reverse the $83.7 billion cut if elected. Is this good news for the ABC? Um, well, of course, the ABC would be very happy to to have the uh, funding freeze re- reversed. I mean, well, look, uh, Shorten uh, did say that Labor will stand up for the ABC and fight yeah. against the conservative conservative ideological war against our public broadcaster. Mm. When does anyone see Shorten's move as just feeding into that hyperpartisan nature that's going on at the ABC at the moment? Well, I mean, you only have to listen to Senate estimates to see that it has become a very hot topic. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, I'm sure it'll, it'll be, um, a big one leading into the election. Yeah, I think, um, I think the ABC has for a long time been, um, treated or perceived as kind of like a left-right issue. Um, so I'm not sure that, um, this will really add to that. I think that that was already, um, the case. Um, yeah, I mean, I did see... Um, Rebecca Sharkey today was saying that um, ABC journalists are afraid to report the facts after these, um, you know, all this criticism from the government. Um, and Jane Norman, the ABC politics reporter, said that was rubbish. Um, so I guess, um, I don't know, I think it's always been an issue. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guest, Dana McCauley from The Australian, Olivia Willis from the ABC, and on the line from Melbourne, Rachel Eddy from the New Daily. Next week, Peter Frey will be back in the host seat. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics, and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Tamsin Peach, your host and historian, and this is History History Lab. Australia's first investigative history podcast, where we explore the gaps between us and the past. History is about how we make meaning and tell stories. It's about who we are, where we've come from, and where we want to go. So join us as we go deep into the archives. So the first actual experience was walking into this this treasure trove where they have, if you can believe it, 21 kilometres worth of manuscripts. And travel to some unexpected places. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you on flight 936 to She said, I never, ever expected to find a Titanic memorial in the middle of this dry country. Sometimes it will be weird. You know you're alive. There's none of this, none of this latte shit sitting in the street. Sometimes it will be heartbreaking.
She was this tiny baby. She'd kind of lived and died in these garments. Her death had triggered this massive, epic misadventure for the Chamberlain family. And maybe the past will answer back. Before you do this, I I just want to say this is possibly the first time these words are being sung by Annie or a woman since 1798. Things aren't always what they seem. When we started writing kind of national history, historians would say things like, Australia began as a blank space on the map and there was nobody there. So we've come a long way since then. And more often than not, we'll find out that history is more about now than it is about then. We've been reconstructing Australian history and completely reconsidering it. This makes Australian history, I think, the edgiest in the world. So subscribe now and get some history in your ears. Just search for History Lab wherever you get your podcasts.